Hi, I'm Maya Nowens, and this is Sound Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I'm here with Antonio. Hello, I'm Antonio Sampaio. Today, what we're going to be discussing is the 2020 edition of the Military Balance, the IISS's yearly flagship publication that looks at military capabilities and defense economics of 171 countries. The book is in its 61st edition, and this year highlights changes in defense spending, NATO's unity, European strategic autonomy, um, and various other uh, questions. So our two guest speakers today are James Hackett, senior fellow in the Defense and Military Analysis Program and editor of the Military Balance book, And secondly, Tom Waldwin, Research Associate for Defense and Military Analysis. James, could you please tell us a little bit about the Military Balance book, what it is, um, and how it's changed since its first edition? Thanks very much, Mayor. I'm just uh, leafing through the book now. 536 pages this year, Military Balance 2020. When it was first produced in 1959, it was 11 pages long. I think the the book has evolved uh, in size reflecting the change in the Institute's research programs. That's one way of, of, of uh, ascribing the, the change in content and the, the increase in content over the years. But also it's because we've decided to become more global over the years in the, uh, the defense coverage that we uh, produce in the Institute. Uh, when the book uh, first, uh, the pamphlet rather I should say, first emerged in 1959, it was really focused on Warsaw Pact and NATO powers. And we've expanded since then to now cover seven regions, so Latin America, Africa, uh, Asia, more broadly than we covered it in the first edition when we covered a handful of countries in that, uh, in that region. So it's reflected, I think, simply the, the increase in uh, coverage of the Institute's work and also, I think, increasing attention on global defense affairs more broadly. And I think the, uh, the, the sort of the spread of military capabilities, I think, more broadly across countries in the world, too. Right. So how have we uh, looked at incorporating um, newer technologies into the book, newer capabilities? It's an interesting point. Um, quite simply, we've created new categories for some of these over the years. And some of those will be just sim- simply new new uh, platforms. We, rec- we uh, cover new uh, uh, sort of capabilities such as missile systems we've put in over the years in the book. An interesting question is how you cover capabilities that are militarily relevant that weren't conceived of at the time that the book was first produced. Hmm. Cyber is one. Uh, and that's something that we uh, elaborate in a, a sort of methodological statement at the back of the book this year. Um, and we'll in the future look to integrate militarily owned cyber capabilities into the military balance. Now, there's an important distinction there because um, we're reflecting in that a caveat that not all cyber capability is military-owned. A lot resides in uh, domestic civil, uh, the civil sector, um, is produced and held in that sector, or is held in intelligence services, for instance, or signals intelligence agencies, for instance. So we we in the military balance aren't going to cover that breadth of civil sector activity and we're going to focus specifically on the military side but we reflect that that uh, in itself is quite exclusionary in the way it approaches that uh, capability but otherwise we wouldn't know where to draw the line i think we have to draw the line somewhere in the data we cover in the book Right. So speaking of data, um, I'm interested in uh, finding out a little bit what you have drawn out as the main story or an important story um, that you've either worked on or that you think is reflected well in the book this year. So maybe, Tom, can you talk about a little can you talk a little bit about um, 
shipbuilding trends that you've seen, perhaps related to China and Russia? Yeah, thanks, Mayor. I spend a lot of uh, my time working on um, industry and procurement data, uh, as well as maritime data for the book. So I spend a lot of time looking at um, various countries' shipbuilding programs and things like that. And uh, the Chinese one, as I'm sure it won't surprise people to hear, stands out um, as uh, just just the sheer scale and size of it. I think um, there was some work we were doing uh, a year or two ago when we were comparing it with um, other countries in the region or traditionally, you know, large navies in Europe and the US. And uh, it just it just dwarfs. You can combine several of those countries together in terms of naval shipbuilding output um, and the Chinese one will still be much, much larger. Mm. Um, but the Chinese, uh, the, the trend with Chinese shipbuilding at the moment um, for the Navy is uh, modernization really um, rather than expansion. Um, they're still largely replacing older platforms that are sort of Cold War era with um, the, these uh, with sort of relatively standardized designs. They went for a period in the 2000s where they produced a few of a, they produced a few ships of a, several different classes. Clearly, they were experimenting with different things and trying to work things out, as well as developing their own design, shipbuilding, engineering capabilities. But since I think about 2010, they've they've really, and maybe even 2015, perhaps uh, they've they've standardised on a few designs. I mean, the frigates, the corvettes, they've built those in such huge numbers. Um, and that's all about replacing the older things. The The areas where they're actually expanding are um, very interesting because it gives them brand new capabilities. Um, their nuclear submarine force is very, very slightly larger than it was because it was almost, it used to be almost, uh, almost nothing. Um, I think they're still working out what exactly they want to do with that. Um, and there's a bit of a lull in the, the building of those at the moment. I think they might be working on a new design or something. What do you mean uh, they're still trying to figure out what they're going to do with that? Well, they've got the they've got their diesel submarines. Um, you know, they've got um, two uh, flotillas in each fleet, uh, so that's six in total. Um, the number of submarines in each of those is has remained pretty much the same. For quite a while, their diesel submarine building has just been swapping those old ones out for the new ones. So you know that's about near seas defence and uh, uh, operations in 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 that kind of area. Um, I think on the nuclear submarine side, um, you can split that into two. You can split that into their nuclear deterrent at sea, and then also their attack submarines with the nuclear propulsion. The Nuclear deterrent. It's um, there was. It's it's an interesting one because they're all based in the south, and uh, there was some interesting um, satellite imagery at one point showing that there was uh, four of them in port at one time. Mm-hmm. Now you could you could conclude based on that that um, uh, the Chinese are not trying to do continuous at sea deterrents like the UK and uh, France and the US do, or you could also c- conclude that they unable to do it for whatever reasons so it's still it's still a bit unclear exactly what they want to do with that uh, and on the attack um, submarines um, they've got a couple down there with the um, 
the the submarines with the nuclear weapons on. Um, but they've also got a lot of them up at a what appears to be a sort of test and development base. So I think they're still trying to work out exactly um, where they want to go. Um, do they want uh, continue, do they want a global presence or do they want to use these for certain types of missions? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, diff- whatever you decide to do is going to require different numbers, different capabilities, different kind of weapons being integrated onto um, onto those things, and also um, uh, different command and control arrangements as well. So, right. So that's the submarines. I mean, the other areas they're expanding quite a lot in are obviously aircraft carriers. That's doubled. Oh, now. I, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, the support ships that go along with those, that's been built up quite a lot. And also just large amphibious platforms that um, um, are very useful uh, for operations around the globe. I mean, when they, when they were in, when they were, I can't remember what year it was, when they were evacuating their people out of Yemen, Yeah. I think they were just using frigates or destroyers. Right. It'd be a lot better to have a large platform with a bunch of helicopters on it to do something like that it would just be a lot easier right i mean i think there's an hadr uh humanitarian assistance and disaster relief uh component here but of course there's the other component which is china's ambition to build a blue water navy and uh and um the question there is not necessarily well of course there has a, a shipbuilding component you need a, a a fleet and a flotilla to be able to do that but at the same time you need to have the skills to be able to operate that right um, James? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's actually an interesting point. That's what I was going to come in on. Um, it raises the question, what is effective capability in this area? Is it simply numbers? Numbers is part of it. And that's uh, one of the things that we have to always bear in mind when consulting books such as the Military Balance that are, you know, have a, a, a heritage in a quantitative assessment. But we are introducing more over the years. We've introduced more qualitative assessments too. Um, for instance, China's producing this vessels at a prodigious pace from its uh, shipyards but is it able to crew them effectively is it able to train and maintain this number of vessels what will happen when these vessels being pumped out at such a pace require midlife upgrade or things like that there are all these questions that i think are still uh, open questions in terms of what these numbers mean for the generation of uh, effective capability um and I think that's one of the things we try to reflect in, in our products also is uh, balancing numbers and uh, force structures with how people are able to use the stuff. Training exercises, for instance. What are training exercises reflect in terms of the capabilities that are being uh, practiced? Um, it's far harder to get information in detail on things like maintenance cycles, yeah. but it's as important because otherwise the countries risk having increasingly number increasing numbers or actually possibly reducing numbers of baroque pieces of military equipment of increased capability but can they effectively maintain them speaking of um how countries actually use all these um, equipments and how capable they are in doing that. One thing that the book highlights is how uh, modernization, uh, defense modernization uh, strategies and programs such as the shipbuilding that uh, Tom mentioned um, is part of a broader great power competition trend, especially involving China and Russia. 
When it comes to U.S. concerns as the current uh, world superpower uh, regarding especially China, I guess, um, which parts or which sections of this um, modernization strategy uh, or modernization, you know, drive by China scare the U.S. most or uh, concern the most? Yeah, concern is probably a a better word to use. I mean, it's not necessarily simply what uh, China might be looking to achieve in its littoral it's, I think, a question and a consequence of China's growing impact as a global arms exporter as well. Uh, something we've traced in recent years is that you know, China might take a while to arrive militarily uh, in the Atlantic, for instance, but its weapons might be seen there uh, sooner. I think uh, some of the concerns that uh, Tom will be able to add, obviously, greater detail uh, on this, are some of the concerns that the Americans have, I think, are reflected in the latest defense budget proposal. China's uh, ballistic missile systems, its uh, hypersonic weapons developments that are much touted and were displayed, I think, at the October military parade with the DF-17 displayed. Um, Those capabilities that I think, as people have talked about in recent years in the context of anti-access area denial, even though that phrase is no longer used by many people, uh, capabilities that could hold at reach uh, forces that might be looking to gain operational access to a particular uh, theater of operations. Those are things that I think will concern the United States forces and partner nations uh, forces in the in the Asia Pacific. So s- still on the topic of great power competition, um, the, the US is preparing you know and, and, and watching China as it, itself prepares and, and, and builds its military capabilities. Uh, and there has been a increase of focus on state-on-state, peer-on-peer conflict um, or potential conflict. How, how does that fit in with the trend that, for instance, the Conflict Security and Development Program here, the IISS, uh, looks at of non-state armed groups, which are basically um, the main uh, drivers of possibly all of the conflicts going on right now in the world, um, or at least the main adversaries for state forces. Um, so h- does this, uh, does this um, focus on state-on-state competition, does that distract uh, uh, armed forces and their governments from you know, the, the, the dynamics going on on the ground involving less uh, symmetric forces? I think um, actually many uh, in... in, sort of in Europe and in uh, America, many politicians and military leaders might actually put it the other way around and say that actually the focus on the counterinsurgency has been the distraction. Oh, that's a good point. Um, and actually, we need to be much more focused on the, uh, you know, state on state, um, near peer, compa- you know, near peer opponent, all that kind of thing. I mean, I think, um, I can't remember who said it, but uh, someone put it to me once that. Uh, if if you're not very good at fighting against insurgency groups, that's not great. But if you're not very good at fighting against uh, and an, another country, then it's really bad. Um, <laughs> yes. However, um, I I understand. Obviously, it's it's even a constitutional duty of militaries to prepare for a peer uh, conflict. However, still the reality is that a lot of the conflicts and a lot of the times that uh, the US got involved in in actual military conflict um, outside its borders was to fight, at least in recent decades, um, non-state armed groups. So still, my question remains, uh, 
do you think that the shift to st- state-on-state conflict has perhaps been too s- swift, or or do you think they're striking a balance between these two um, broad areas? I don't, I don't think the shift's taken place yet. I mean, pe- people are talking about uh, rebuilding capabilities in the areas such as you know electronic warfare that mm. just lapsed, weren't focused on. Um, operating in contested airspace. You know, these sort of operations you're talking about against non-state actors, generally speaking, took par- took uh, place in uh, benign operating environments, at least in the, the air domain. Uh, a nation's having to reset for that. I mean, Tom's right. You know, you have to prepare for the worst fight and then dial down from there because there simply isn't enough money to go around and forces have shrunk to such a degree that they would find it hard doing a number of different contingencies at once. And that's the problem of the defense planner, isn't it, is not getting it so wrong that you can't adapt in time, but you've got to prepare for the worst possible contingency. Having said that, you know, the other point where Tom's right is that nations, uh, some European nations, did reshape their forces to conduct these out-of-area operations. So they moved away from the conventional hard power capabilities that some of them are now coming to terms with once more. Ground-based air defense is one. Long-range rocket artillery is another. You know, these capabilities weren't necessarily required on the ground in in the last 15 years of, of conflict, but you still need them if you if you uh, want to prepare for the possibility of a high-end fight. I think also in terms of uh, planning, and particularly uh, on the equipment side, um, you can use a lot of the things that uh, you would use against uh, a near-peer opponent or a peer opponent against. They would be useful against a a non-state armed group, but the kind of things that you would acquire specifically to combat an insurgency would have limited would be less useful perhaps for uh, the higher end of um, warfare. Um, and also just, I th- I th- yeah, I think I agree with James. I think the shift is, um, it's in the beginnings of it, but um, it just takes like a decade to change, uh, you know, to come up with an idea, design it, contract it, put it in, work out how you're going to use it, fix it when it comes to you and it doesn't work, put in service in large, it takes uh, like a decade or more. So it's going to take a while before you really see, uh, and that's just on the equipment side, um, before you really see uh, militaries more geared towards the, you know, the great power competition. I mean, I suppose the two are not entirely separate where you have state-on-state competition and conflict and then non-state actor uh, uh, conflict. I mean, I think a concern at the moment as well is uh, countries starting to become, as James mentioned, weapons exporters um, in areas where they perhaps weren't before as their defense industries grow and continue to um, produce increasingly complex uh, capabilities such as drones and how those without the, um, I suppose, condition of arm sales and, and, and ties to how those are used and who the end user is supposed to be might be sold on to non-state actors. Have we seen that yet? Yeah, I think... Um uh, if you look at Yemen, who, who I don't think the Saudis probably thought when they um, decided to uh, begin operations in Yemen that they would have to be using their um, their and their Patriot, you know, anti-ballistic missile systems as much as as they've had to. Hmm. Um, um, so I think that's possibly an example of that. The fact that um, struggle against, for instance, um, Iran. Um, I'm saying I'm talking about uh, 
broadly the West or the West uh, and its rival, geopolitical rivalry with Iran has played out against uh, basically proxies or allied non-state armed groups in the Middle East. Uh, as the IISS strategic dossier recently um, uh, showed, um, has has this um, use of non-state armed groups by state forces? Does that impact the not so much the hardware that we've already discussed, the the capabilities being built, but the doctrinal thought or strategic planning of um, you know state militaries? Well, of course, it forces uh, adaptation uh, in terms of the tactics that might be required. Let's say in defending shipping in the Gulf. Um, and it will, of course, have have an impact on some capability developments. And so, so some people uh, ascribe the uh, maritime employment of lasers as potentially useful in that sort of contingency. Um, but, you know, states such as Iran use what levers they have. They are unable to modernize their conventional armed forces uh, over the last sort of 30, 40 years after the Iranian Revolution and with sanctions. So they look to use what levers they could. And I think... You know, that's, that's simply apparent from its built, its network of proxy forces across the region, where it built, as I think we said, a sovereign capability that couldn't be countered by the conventional military power effectively of, of other states. And these levers will be seen used by other states as well, information influence tools. You know, there's a toolbox. Military power is just one part of that. What we like to do in this podcast is to shine a light on the wonderfully talented team of researchers that we are lucky enough to count as colleagues here at the IISS. If you'd like to learn more about their research, visit the IISS website today. You'll find lots of free reports, blogs, and commentary, as well as recordings of events that we host around the world. There's a wealth of material for you to explore at www.iiss.org. Maybe moving on to uh, the data uh, collection aspect of how we compile this book every year. Um, Tom, you work very much on the data analysis and data collection side. Could you walk us through what your work entails? Uh, yeah, so it's, um, it's a lot of spreadsheets. Um, so if you enjoy looking at spreadsheets a lot, then this is some good work. Yeah, that can't be your answer. Ah. <laughs> I thought that would explain it all. Um, yeah, so it's it's it it's, it varies depending on what exactly you're, look, you're looking at. So there are European countries and some Latin American countries in the US where there is a lot of publicly available information. Um, very occasionally, there's too much in the US case, and there's lots of stuff to go through. Um, but there's a lot of publicly available information, and it's. It's just uh, a lot of the time it's just making sure that uh, you un- you understand what they're talking about when they talk about certain things. Um, other countries where there's um, a lot less um, well transparency, um, that means you've got to use a, a lot more different uh, different types of sourcing. So you still get press releases from industry, occasionally from governments and things like that. But you also have to rely a lot more on satellite imagery, uh, amateur uh, photography and spotters and things like that. Um, other governments' assessments of what that country is doing are very useful. Uh, it's It really is like a, a whole um, a whole range of different ways to get at stuff. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, Tom's right. Uh 
I think um, one of the, the, the points that springs from those he was just mentioning was that uh, we need to, of course, critically examine each of the data points that we put into the book. You conduct uh, source assessment, who's saying what, why are they saying it, when was it said, when was the picture posted, you know, do we think it's a legitimate image? Um, we don't take anything as given in the data that, uh, that we receive and uh, receive from governments because we uh, write to each government that's contained in the book each year for uh, comments on the data in the book. So we critically examine each data point. And an example of this, I think, is um, uh, one that Tom and I have talked about before, where um, we spotted on the, uh, a national MOD site um, uh, a, a number for a main battle tank holding for a particular country that was about 100 out from the information point that, that we had on communication with that country. And the reason was that the, the, the website actually was giving the final order number, not the current inventory number. So you really have to bear in mind what, what each number actually is saying right. when you're trying to put it into our, into our data point. So we have to critically examine each data point in the book, which, given there's 530-plus pages, is quite a, quite a task. Well, as we um, mentioned, the military balance has been going on since uh, the 1950s. Um, late 1950s, but you know it is a very long-standing product of the IISS, and for good reason. When it comes to new methods of collecting information or seeing information, um, such as um, social media, a lot of you know some research um, um, done by many disciplines uh, use Twitter, for instance, or other forms of social media. Is that at all? Um, a factor in collecting information, spotting things? Is there a way to um, be, ad uh, be advised or be warned um, that something of interest has been posted on Twitter on, on more like defense uh, capabilities? I mean, you know, the, the, the uh, sort of information, uh, I would say information revolution, but certainly the advent of social media and uh, uh, public access to satellite imagery and things like that, it's, it's, it's a boon for the open source uh, analyst, and that's what we are, open source analysts. We, uh, the Institute is an independent organization. Um, but it comes with a number of challenges. One is the veracity point I was saying earlier, and the second is simply volume. There's an awful lot out there. So actually sifting through this stuff and sorting the, the wheat from the chaff in it, as it were, is, is, a, is a, a particular challenge that for, for, the, for the analysts here, but also the broader analytical community, Tom, you've do this on a day-to-day -day basis yeah I think well there's certainly my work there's um, there's companies and there's governments who actually you know they will only talk about something on Twitter now um, they will not that you won't get a press release for something you'll get a tweet about something instead um, which is it's good but it's obviously less words fewer words um, but you also get a lot of um, uh, a lot of other people who are very interested in the same sort of subjects that we're interested in, um, and so it's very interesting to see what other people make of things. And um, you know, there's the good thing about Twitter is you get access to a lot of people um, and their insights on things which you wouldn't be able to get access to very easily unless you bought their book or something like that. Um, but then there's also a lot of uh, uh, you know, misinformation and things like that. There's, you know, pictures which I can't remember which one it was, but there's an example the other day where it was a 
uh, a picture someone had posted of something and said, look, this is this is this. Uh, and um, I, th- I, th- I think I recognized it and it, it, it was a picture that had been cropped with the, the information that would have proven that to be otherwise cropped out of it. Right. Um, so it's, it's just about being careful with it, really. I mean, and just understanding, like James said, uh, who, it, who it is or where it is you're getting your information from. Um, so I think... Uh, the, the the main the main change with Twitter really is just the, the the quantity of things to look at because you'd still run the same kind of analysis you'd run on a tweet as you would run on a uh, a government press release probably. I have a little tale to tell about this because I was um, I was in my parents' uh, flat in, in Rio um, and uh, and and. You know, Rio is a very violent city. So on the uh, evening news, there was this uh, image of this huge rifle that they apprehended uh, somewhere in Rio that they thought was going to some uh, criminal organization, not in Rio or in some other part of Brazil. And I took a picture and I posted it on Twitter as a, as a because I'm a researcher on these things and I thought, uh, you know, astonishing that the size of the of the weapon going to basically a criminal organization. And uh, it was picked up by some data geeks on Twitter that started sharing and commenting on the weapon and, you know, w- what I said and to, to try to get information on, on capabilities of these non-state armed groups. So I guess that, that is a way of, of, um, of, of linking to the next question, which is, again, going back to the topic of more non-state armed groups, how do, how do you account for, or if you account for, um, groups that are uh, perhaps linked somehow to, to states, um, I'm thinking here of the Middle East, um, and the more conventional or, or close to conventional capabilities that they sometimes acquire. I mean, ISIS is, um, is, is a classic example, right, of a non-state armed groups that acquired pretty um, heavy um, um, equipment. Do you, do you at all um, explore that perhaps in essays or, or, or in the data in the book? Yeah, well, I think actually there's, there's an even better example of um, integration of a non-state group into a country's structure, which is the um, the uh, the separatists in eastern Ukraine, because um, the, they've been reorganised in such a way that they are essentially a part of the the Russian command structure, um, and they're organised along, you know, Russian lines into motor rifle units and that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's an that's probably an even clearer example of uh, of uh, the relationship between a state and a, um, a non-state group, perhaps. Um, but we we do cover um, some of those uh, some of those kind of groups, which I think James knows a bit more. Yeah, about. I mean we we uh, we do it principally in the military balance plus the online database, but we don't do it for a wide range of non-state groups. I mean, as you know, Antonio, in, in CSDP. In the armed conflict survey, you'll be doing a lot of this work on non-state groups. So, in the military balance, we military balance plus, we tend simply to focus on those groups that have observed conventional capabilities of the sort that are held by other conventional forces, so uh, APCs, tanks, that sort of thing. But it's uh, we talked about the information challenge earlier, uh, mm. and it's a particular information challenge for non-state groups. Uh, I think in terms of um, grading the quality of information that's out there, dating it, and also just uh, a simple matter of uh, data availability and analytical uh, capacity 
uh, not just in the Institute, but around, uh, around the world, in the analytical community looking at these groups. Uh, some are better than others in terms of the uh, reporting available on them. So the Military Balance uh, book has a online version, the Military Balance Plus database. I was wondering whether you could briefly talk about how we are developing uh, the Military Balance product in the future, and also, in particular, how the Military Balance uh, Plus differs and will uh, change, perhaps, what we're able to provide in the book. Thanks, Mayor. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, I think one of the, one of the challenges uh, inherent in the Military Balance book, it's always been designed to be a concise product, so something you're able to carry around the briefcase, but it's got bigger and it's got heavier, and there are limits simply to the print, uh, the, the size of a, a book that we can produce. Military Balance Plus, uh, which is a searchable database that we've been uh, running now for a couple of years, allows users to ask their own queries of the data. Um, it allows people to get information much faster from the book. Um, we've sorted it into a number of different categories. You can search by country, by equipment. You can look by forces as well. And you can put country, you can ba balance countries against countries. So the sort of work that would take an analyst a day to do uh, by searching through a paper copy and putting it into a spreadsheet can take a matter of seconds online. And it simply will allow us to hold more information in future. It's where a lot of our cyber stuff is going to be going in future, when we start expanding data sets to do even more uh, new pieces of equipment, such as uninhabited systems in the maritime domain. That'll very likely go in the Military Balance Plus and summaries held in the Military Balance Book, because the Military Balance Book in the future, I think, will become more of a, the analytical conclusions out of the increasing range of data that we hold online in the Military Balance Plus database. So now we uh, are going to ask you some questions to learn more about um, who you are and you know who produces the, the the military balance. So how did you get interested in this line of work, Tom? Well, I've always been interested in uh, history and military history, um, and that's what I did at university. So uh, it was a it's it was a natural um, move forward in time, perhaps to the present day. Um, and uh, I think I, I, I guess it, my, my, I've always had the interest, but it really uh, developed when I was um, at university and I was here at the Institute as a part-time research assistant. Um, and that just, it, it just sort of showed me all the different, different uh, questions and uh, interesting things to go, you know, avenues to go down and um, the, the variety across the world and, you know, all that, all that kind of thing. So. What's the favorite part of your job? Well, I mentioned the spreadsheets earlier. <laughs> that's a big draw. When James, when James said unlimited spreadsheets, that's when I agreed. And you studied ancient history, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. A lot of spreadsheets there as well. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I did ancient history and then uh, moved slightly forward, further forward in time and did medieval uh, history. Um, so now I'm further forward in time so eventually i'll be doing future crystal ball gazing or something at some point tom is currently working on the military balance at the war of the roses era yeah, yeah. how about you james um i think uh, you know as tom's indicated a sort of a key um point of interest for all of us working on the military balance which is uh, an interest in defense equipment defense policies and the uh, and military history i think more broadly and i think that goes for me as it does for the rest of the team uh, I've always been interested in these issues. I think for myself, I came into the job in 2008 
But from an editorial point of view, so I used to work in the Institute on Strategic Comments, which is our sort of a, a briefing on uh, uh, political, military, security matters that we published at the Institute. So I think, you know, we've always, always held that interest in defence data. And I've um, actually really enjoyed the opportunity not just to, to develop the, the data points with the team over the years and do more, but actually to make it more accessible. I think that's a key thing that we've tried to do in the book and a database over the years is to um, allow users to interact better with the information and uh, try to make more comprehensible, I suppose, complex defense developments that might be help happening across multiple states. So in a key way we've done that in the book, I think, is just by using more graphics to try and make make clear to people the story behind behind the data. And I've particularly enjoyed that that part of the job. Yeah, not a simple task, though, those graphics. They take a lot of work. No, happily I'm able to, to task other people in the team <laughs> with that, that, uh, that uh, honor. You're welcome, Tom. Yeah, <laughs> I, enjoy, I enjoy it a lot. So what, moving on from our book to other books, what is your favorite, the favorite book in your field? Um, maybe we'll go in reverse order, starting with James. Ah, um, well, I think, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll beg indulgence and maybe go for two. The first one I'd mention would be a military history book, which is Michael Howard's, uh, Sir Michael Howard's The First World War, which uh, is uh, an admirably clear and concise book uh, disposition on the causes, uh, course and consequences of the First World War in a, just over 150 pages. It's a, a brilliant book, very clear, and I'd, I'd commend it to, to uh, listeners. Um, another interesting book, though, is not necessarily related to the field, but it relates to how you use data. Um, and that's uh, a book by uh, an Australian uh, gentleman called Bruce Pascoe, which is called Dark Emu. Uh, and that's a book that I found it fascinating when I looked at it. It was uh, recommended to me um, by an Australian friend. And what Bruce Pascoe does is looks at the early settlers' accounts, the, the early um, English-British settlers who were moving then across the continent of Australia and looks at them um, in the sense of what they say about indigenous Australians. Um, because, of course, as you'll know, that country was declared terra nullis, an uninhabited land. But Pascoe looks at the settlers' accounts and the explorers' accounts to, to discern what they say about the communities they came across. They were communities in many cases, and they were settled communities in many cases. And it, just se it seems to me that, that it's just a very interesting way to look at documents, to look at data. And it's not... It, it, so the message is not necessarily to look at the story that jumps straight out at you, but to read more deeply into documents because they can often carry uh, very interesting underlying messages and stories. Yeah, that book is still on my list to buy. You've sold it well. Tom? Uh, my selection uh, is called King of the Killing Zone by Kelly Orr, which is a 40-year-old book uh, about the development of the uh, American M1 Abrams tank um, and its origins and... Uh, uh, originally, the Americans and the Germans wanted to cooperate on something called the MBT-70, and then that got, as a lot of uh, American army uh, procurement programs tend to do, it got incredibly expensive, uh, and they had to cancel it. Uh, but they went on to develop um, the um, the Abrams. And um, 
this actually ties back with the question you asked a moment ago about what I enjoyed doing uh, most. Um, and actually, one of the things I really like doing most is looking into trade-offs. Um, so this book obviously talks about a lot about different equipment design trade-offs. The two options they had when they were picking one were two different engines. One of them a lot more expensive, and that's the one they went for. Um, but also more able to have have generate more power. Um, but there's all sorts of pros and cons. Um, so this book is, is it's a good uh, examination of that kind of thing, um, uh, and also looks at uh, some of the uh, the people behind the the faceless bureaucrats that people like to you know criticise um, because it's people making decisions um, to spend and to spend lots of money and um, um, and it, it gives them a it gives them a story. Yeah, something that we don't really get to see very often yeah, exactly. or that the public doesn't really um, yeah. get to experience and read into. And often for good reason. <laughs> I'd love to see a summary of that book in spreadsheet format. In spreadsheet format, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Each page number will have a, a row. That sounds good. Thank you very much uh, both for sharing these uh, insights into the 2020 edition of the Military Balance, uh, which you can get uh, online uh, from our website, www.org. Um, and you can also uh, have a look at the Military Balance Plus, which, as we have mentioned, um, is an online database uh, containing the data of the Military Balance. And also, uh, you can subscribe to Sounds Strategic for more in-depth discussions like this. And as always, um, to keep up to date with the latest trends in defense, international security, and as we saw, non-state armed groups, follow us on Twitter uh, and other social media. Thank you very much. <laughs>